John chapter number 14, John chapter number 14. While you find your place there, let me say you should be praying about that Supreme Court decision. You should be praying that they make the right decision, which is to protect the lives of children. Um, the I'm, I'm a believer in states' rights. I, I am. I, I'm, I'm a believer in federalism. I'm a believer in states' rights. I think one of the most damaging things that ever happened to our country is when we gave up on states' rights. You know, used to, when the country was founded, they spoke of it as a laboratory of democracy. And the reason for that was because the idea was that we had 50 opportunities, of course, not at that time 50, but I mean, uh, in our current iteration today, we, had, we have 50 opportunities to get it right. In other words, uh, you know, uh, some states may make terrible decisions, awful decisions, and, um, you know, they live with the consequences of those decisions, ideally. And then other states can make other decisions. We have 50 opportunities to get it right. Uh, we have departed a long ways from that system in our country. We live in a time now, and of course that was settled at one time with the bloods of uh, over half a million uh, people, over 500,000, 600,000. Taylor, give me the right answer. But a uh, thousand people uh, that died. Uh, but we lost something even worse there. We lost the ability to have that laboratory of democracy. And so I'm a believer in states' rights. I think it is a good thing. I think it is the, one of the best things we could have for our country is for state sovereignty to be respected. Uh, and I used to sort of be of the opinion, I'd say, well, you know, they ought to kick this thing back to the states and let states decide because I believe that is more uh, purely constitutional. But let me even make a bolder statement. I don't think states should be deciding. I, I think we ought to protect life. Amen. Uh, in other words, I don't just want to say, well, you know, if they want to be a bunch of degenerates up in some liberal state and kill a bunch of children. I mean, think about how awful that sounds to say that. It should bother us no matter where it is that they're killing children. Uh, and so we ought to pray that they make the right decision on this. Uh, I, I can't remember how many uh, lives of children have been saved already just in the time since Texas passed their abortion law. In Mississippi, of course, how many? 88 days. Well, I don't know how many kids that is. It's a bunch. It's hundreds, hundreds of children that are going to get the opportunity to grow up uh, because of, of this law. And so we ought to be we ought to be praying for that. Uh, we I want us to be a righteous nation. Um, you know, I, I want us to be a godly nation. I want us to be a righteous nation. Uh, and while I'm a constitutionalist, I am a, a federalist. I believe in states rights and all those things. Uh, I, I think they're important. I think they're vital to the to the well-being of our country. I think as a very base fundamental level, we as as uh, people ought to be able to agree that we shouldn't be killing children, that that's an evil thing, that that's a sinful thing uh, to be doing that, that that it, it ought to it ought to turn our stomach to know that that happens. And, um, you know, it, it's I understand there'll always be you know, children that are killed in the world, uh, but you probably wouldn't feel that way if we were talking about your child. Uh, and of course, all of these are somebody's child. And uh, we, ought to be, we ought to be praying for this law. I'm praying for it. I don't have a lot of confidence, really, in our political leaders, if I'm being frank. Uh, but, but I'm praying that, I don't know, somehow they, they mess up and do the right thing. Amen. And uh, so you ought to be praying for that as well. Very important. That's a bigger issue than any other issue. And I have opinions on pretty much all of them. But uh, it's more important than any other issue going on today. Uh, we very often will say God will judge our country or is judging our country because of the murder of unborn children. Uh, but then very often when we want to talk about how to fix our country, we don't talk about that. That gets relegated to some kind of, of, of you know, a nebulous moral issue where we say, well, you know, that's, uh, and here's the favorite politician's word, it's a social issue. What does that mean, a social issue? 
uh, I think it's pretty apparent that uh, being on the wrong side of social issues, uh, and when I'm speaking of that, I'm speaking of things that deal with morality and righteousness, is leading to major instability and upheaval in our country. Uh, and so the best way we can fix our country is by being a righteous people. And we ought to pray for that. Amen. All right, John chapter number 14 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 19. John chapter 14, verse number 19. There's a little thought I want to sort of zero in on tonight. and I, It was a help to me. I trust it will be to you as well. John chapter 14, verse number 19. Lord Jesus, on the eve of the crucifixion, He's speaking to His disciples and He says this, Yet a little while, and the world seeth Me no more. But ye see Me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judah saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for the house of God, for the local church, Lord. Thank you for these people. What a blessing it is to my heart to get to gather in this place and to preach your word, Lord, and, and to hear your word, for it to be spoken to my heart as well. I pray that you'd help us this evening to have our hearts open to the truth of thy word. Lord, let none of us come in here just merely for a, a Bible study, just merely for a passing academic uh, endeavor, but Lord, let us come tonight with hearts open, ready to hear from heaven, ready to have our lives dealt with uh, by you. And Lord, we know that if we come with that attitude, that you'll not disappoint, you'll speak to our hearts. So help us to have the right attitude, and may Christ be magnified in all that's said, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen. In John chapter number 14, the Lord Jesus is teaching, giving some parting words to his disciples. Now, if you're a student of the Word of God, you know that this scene sort of begins in chapter number 13 with uh, the washing of the disciples' feet and some uh, teaching that the Lord Jesus is doing. It continues into chapter 14. And all the while, they're in the upper room. In fact, you'll notice the very last verse of this chapter, the Lord Jesus says, Arise, let us go hence. That's the point at which they leave the upper room and begin their journey uh, to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he continues that teaching in chapter 15 and chapter 16. Uh, it would uh, be a great benefit to you to spend, man, I mean, probably years, really, if we're being honest, but certainly a matter of weeks or months just studying out this portion of Scripture. Uh, he gathers the disciples around them, uh, him and gives them some parting words, some things that they would need to know for the rest of their life that he wanted to impart to them in these last few moments. But in the course of that, the Lord Jesus makes some uh, groundbreaking statements to them. If I'm being honest, he makes some statements that if you were them, you would sort of find a little troubling. It would be something that you'd probably scratch your head about and want an explanation concerning. 
Uh, Notice with me, for instance, verse number 19. The Lord Jesus says this, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. Here He reminds them that He is a leaving Savior. And He speaks of His coming departure. He says, you know, right now I'm with you in the flesh, but I'm not going to be with you in the flesh always. There's coming a time I'm going to leave and I'm going to ascend to heaven and you need to be preparing yourself for that moment. Of course, that's still where we're at today. Uh, We understand that in a sense, Jesus being God is omnipresent. But the Bible teaches us that when He came to this earth, He robed Himself in flesh, confined Himself to some constraints of of time and space. And we know right now where He's at. We don't have any question. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Uh, We're speaking in real terms here. And as Peter said, whom having not seen ye love, we've not seen the Lord Jesus. He's not present physically speaking here amongst us. And so we're in a very similar situation. This, I mean, when we read it, we have a lot of context. But to the disciples on this night, this would have been a troubling prospect. For three years, they've been walking with the Savior. He has been the center of their universe. And now they're being told that He's getting ready to leave. And the nature of their relationship is going to change. He goes on to say in the next breath, but ye see me. Now that's interesting. This seems sort of contradictory. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. I'm leaving. I won't be present here. But then he turns and he says, but ye see me. In other words, there's going to be a continuing presence in your life. We could say it this way. He tells them he's a leaving Savior, but then he almost, it seems like an about face, he reminds them that he is a lingering Savior. In other words, that this departure would not be the end of their relationship. That it would change but it would not cease to be. Can I just say this tonight? Man, I'm thankful that He's not left us nor forsaken us. I understand the nature of our relationship with Him is different than the nature of the disciples' relationship with Him at this time. But I'm glad there's still a relationship. In fact, let me go a step further. I'm glad there's a better and richer relationship than even what they experienced in this life. So He tells them He's a leaving Savior and then He is a lingering Savior. And one might be tempted if you're one of the disciples to think, Well, maybe what he means is we'll be left with his memory. Maybe what he means is he's getting ready to die, but the things he's taught us will persist and and we'll be able, almost like a loved one grieving a a loved one that has uh, gone home to be with the Lord, maybe we'll be able to sit back and, and just enjoy and reminisce on the time that we spent with them. But notice what he says, the next phrase, he disabuses them of that. He says, because I live, ye shall live also. So he says he's a leaving Savior and a lingering Savior, but then he speaks that he is a living Savior. In other words, what he's saying is this is not abstract. You're not merely going to be left with a memory of me. He's saying I am getting ready to enter into death's domain, but I will come out victorious on the other side. He speaks of his conquering life, and he says what I'm talking about is not abstract. We are going to have a relationship because I will continue to live. In fact, he goes so far as to say, because I live, you're going to live also. So he says, it's not just changing the nature of of my experience of life, but it's changing the nature of your experience of life as well. Now, again, they might have been tempted to say, well, maybe he means this in a metaphorical way. You know, maybe he means this in some kind of abstract, you know, you always kind of live on in the memories of those that pass on, you know, like Paul sort of said, you know, he said, you know, we live as long as ye stand. But then he gets a little more explicit. Verse 20, he says, at that day, in other words, the day when I'm no longer physically present here, he says, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me 
and I in you. In other words, he reminds them that he is a literal Savior. This is not a metaphorical explanation. He's reminding them that this relationship will persist, substantively speaking. Let me say, I'm glad we have a literal Savior. I'm glad that we're not, listen, he's not a figment of our imagination. He's not the long, dead, dusty memory of a religious leader that perished under brutal hands. He is a living Savior. He is a literal Savior. He is not a crutch that helps us get through life. He is the God of all creation. And He is alive and He is present in your life and in my life. He is a literal Savior. He's not just a Savior in the sense of helping us get by day by day. He is a Savior in the sense that He has bought and purchased my whole being, body, soul, and mind, and spirit. He has saved me. He is a literal Savior. And He tells them that in that day, you're going to know. I know we don't talk about this in terms of eternal security, but let me just drop it in here. There's some things you can know. He says, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He speaks of His confirmed relationship. But then, notice what He says in verse number 21. He says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. He reminds him he's a loving Savior. In other words, what he says is, I would not leave you without my presence. And in fact, he's reminding them that the closeness of their relationship, rather than diminishing in his absence, it's going to intensify. It's going to increase. He's saying, we're not getting farther away, though present physically I will be at a distance from you. Our relationship is growing more intimate the farther that I go away. And he gives some explanations for that. But he speaks of his close fellowship with them. Then he says this at the end of verse 21. He says, I will manifest myself to him. In other words, you're going to know You're going to see me, you're going to know me, and you're going to know I'm real, and you're going to know that I live in the presence of my Father. You're going to know this is not fake. You're going to know this is not some charlatan trick, some carnival barker's illusion. You're going to know that you have a real relationship with me in that day. Now Judas asked this question. I like how tactful the Holy Ghost is. He says, not a scary the, uh, I, some people probably say that about me. They say, Toby Weber, not that one, you know. It says, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord. And he asks a very simple question, very obvious question. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? In other words, what are going to be the terms, the conditions, the nature of our relationship such that to those that know you and love you, it will be beyond a shadow of a doubt, real, and vibrant and living. And yet the world is not going to be a partaker in it unless they come to you. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, a private viewing. It says, I want you to know that when I'm gone, you're going to continue to have a relationship with me, and it's a real relationship. And then he goes on to describe how that takes place. And let me just say tonight, I'm glad we have a real God I'm glad we have real religion. I know we sometimes don't like to use that word. Whatever you want to call it, man. I'm glad we got real Christianity. Uh, we're not, we're not just trying to sort of, uh, you know, make our way through smoking the opium of the masses as the godless describe it. We're not just trying to soothe our conscience and, and calm our nerves so that we can float our way through life without coming unhinged. We have a real God, real Christianity, a real Bible, a real relationship with the Almighty. What does that look like? Well, he goes on 
to answer this question. Judah says, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And the Lord Jesus gives him four ways that we can know our Christianity is real. Four things that we can rest in and find comfort in in knowing. I'm not talking about subjective things. I'm not talking about philosophical things. But I'm talking about things that every born-again believer can look at and be encouraged in knowing that they are not passing along some delusion when they tell people about Christ, but they are talking about the real deal, the real article, something that is not just man's imagination, but something that is a divine revelation. What are those four things? Notice what Jesus says, verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Let me say number one, we know that it's real tonight because of His powerful precepts that He has given unto us. We know because of the Word of God. Whenever uh, Judas asks, how am I going to know that I still have a relationship with you? How am I going to see you when the world can't see you? The Lord Jesus points to the truth of the Word of God. And He says, don't forget that the sayings which I have spoken to you are real, meaningful, meaningful and powerful. They are transformative. They have changed your life. And though I may not be physically present with you, that word that I have spoken to you is still as real and as powerful as it ever has been. You want to know if this book is real? Just look at how it changes lives and look at how it makes people mad. (laughs) Notice what he says about his precepts. One, he says they are revealing precepts. He says, if a man love me, he'll keep my words. You know, one of the things that's beautiful and precious about this book, it shows us how real our Christianity is. Because if we really believe it, we're going to really live it. And as we live it, it transforms and changes our life. I've found this, that a person cannot have an intimate relationship with the Word of God and be a sincere person without dealing with their spiritual problem and dealing with the Lord concerning it. Now, it's true there can be people that are uh, deeply deceptive, that are hypocritical, that just have no desire for truth, and they may traffic in false doctrine. But if a person is genuine and sincere, they're seeking for the truth, and they come to the Word of God and they read it, they'll find truth there. And it will reveal things about them, their life, and their relationship with God. If you want to know if you love Him, ask yourself, am I living for Him? The Lord Jesus said, if a man love me, he will keep my words. Not he should, not he might. He will keep my words. You want to know how real your Christianity is? Ask yourself how obedient you are to the Word of God. That's how you can tell how much that you love Him. They're revealing precepts. Then He says this, my Father will love Him, and we will come unto Him and make our abode with Him. Now, it's evident that the word love that's being used here is a comparative word. The reason I say that is because, in a sense, God, the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, they love the entire world. They love even lost people. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but of everlasting life, right? But the Lord Jesus is speaking here about the relationship that He has had with the disciples. And what He's saying is, I'm leaving and going away to my Father. I have loved you for these three years. You've loved me. I've been your friend. I've been your Lord, your Master, your Savior. We've had this intimate relationship together. Now I am leaving, but I'm doing so to facilitate a greater relationship that you can have with my Heavenly Father. 
He says, one time gone, if you'll just continue to follow in the truth of my word, if you'll continue to serve me, you'll find I'm not absent, I'm present in a greater way than I've ever been before. It says my father will love him, not just me, but the same relationship you've had with me, you'll have with God in heaven, with the father. And he says, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. I'd say this, they're not only revealing precepts, they're abiding precepts. When you begin to live the word of God, it will change your life. God will show up in your life. There are a great many people that want to have a relationship with God. Let's say it this way. They want to have a life with God in it, but they don't want to have a life with God's Word in it. Well, I'm sorry. God's Word is the means of God being in your life. That's how He's present there. And so he says, you want to know if this thing's real? You want to know how that you can still look to me and see me and have a relationship with me? Obey my word, live my word, and you'll find that God is more present in your life than he's been these three years that I've been walking with you. I'd say this, listen, we don't have no second-rate Christianity today. Uh, I, I know it's easy to sometimes look back and in, in, in imagination sort of wish we were like the disciples living in that time, seeing those things. But hey, listen, the Lord Jesus Himself goes on to say just two, three chapters later that blessed are those uh, whom having not seen have believed on their word. Uh, we are more blessed than the disciples ever were. And we have a relationship with God now that the disciples prior to Calvary never could have imagined that. They are abiding precepts. And then notice verse 24, He says this, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, He says, but the Father's which sent me. In other words, he's saying these teachings that I've given you, these words that I've spoken to you, the very word of God. Remember, he was the living word. This is the written word. He's saying, if you love me, you'll continue to live in these truths. As you live in these truths, God will become ever more real to you in your life. But he says, here's another way to tell that it's real. Look around and look at the response of people that don't love God. Isn't it amazing how people that hate God always seem to live unbiblical lives? I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. What's to suggest that a man that rejects God has to reject the principles of the Bible? A man could be a God-hating person and yet still have a life that aligns with the Word of God except for one simple fact that this book is not just a book of man's principles. It's a book of God's precepts. And as such, that very part of them that hates God recoils away from this book. Hey, you want to know if this King James Bible is the very uh, preserved, inerrant, inspired Word of God for us today? You want to know whether that's true? Ask yourself how many of those false perversions have an enemies list. Is there anybody writing articles about the crazy, fanatic, NIV-only people? No, they're always taking shots at this King James Bible. Why? Because they, they know the power in it. They know the truth in it. There's something real in this book. It's all real in this book. And what I'm saying is this, the Word of God, they are dividing precepts. Uh, you want to know whether uh, Jesus is really who He says He is? Look how the world hates Him. Uh, you want to know whether the Bible's really the Word of God? Look how despised it is. You want to know whether Christianity is the real article and the real deal? Look at the, the vitriol that is poured against it more than any other religion in the world. There is more hatred towards Bible Christianity that has done nothing but uh, shoe shoeless kids and feed orphans and uh, open hospitals and heal sick people than there is against militant Islam which has sought to subjugate peoples and behead people and, and act in cruelty and viciousness. And yet there's whole lobbies in Congress for their interests. But they hate Bible Christianity. Well, why is that? Well, it's very simple. He that loveth me not keepeth not my saying. 
So he points to his powerful precepts. Look at verse 25. He, he mentions a second thing. He says, these things have I spoken unto you being present, yet present with you. In other words, this is what I've taught you. You already have this with you. He says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. So he points to a second thing that they could look at and know that he is real and that he's present in their lives, and that is his personal presence in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, listen, this is part of the reason a lot of well-meaning people that that value doctrine, and doctrine matters, and doctrine is important, and doctrine is paramount, but a lot of well-meaning people that want an emphasis of, on doctrine have, have in that developed a cynical spirit and disposition towards the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And I want you to know something. Hey, listen, if we try to put opposed to each other the real work of the Holy Spirit and the real Word of God, you're putting two things that are opposite of each other that cannot be put opposite of each other. It's His book. He's not scared of it, and it's not scared of Him. And we shouldn't be scared of it either. The Holy Spirit of God is part of the way that we in a believer's life. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of people who get nervous when you start talking about the Holy Ghost. Why does that make us nervous? It should not. And I fear that a lot of people get nervous about it because there's a lot of insecurity concerning it because of the state of their relationship with the Lord. If they're not having uh, a, a real meaningful relationship with God that is uh, mediated by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, then it makes them uncomfortable to talk about the Holy Spirit. They're, you're, they're talking about a figure that they're not real familiar with. And it makes them nervous. Now, the Lord Jesus, He said, that's one of the ways you're going to know. And He gives four things that the Holy Spirit would do in our life whereby we could sense and see and know the realness of Christianity. One, He mentions that He's the comforter. In other words, you say, preacher, how do I know that Bible Christianity is real? Well, if you're a saved child of God, you'll find supernatural comfort if you'll go to God in times of anxiety and deep concern. Uh, listen, I've seen God sustain people. I'm talking about the frame of mind over this past two years like you wouldn't believe with a peace that passeth all understanding. Now, I understand a lot of the world's gone crazy. I understand a lot of people have cast away their confidence, which hath a great recompense and reward. But I've also seen a lot of people that are facing social pressures, environmental pressures, financial pressures, and yet still they have resolved to trust God in the midst of it with a peace that the world cannot understand. Where'd that come from? Well, the Holy Ghost. That's where it came from. He is the God of all comfort, God is, and He uses the Holy Spirit to comfort us. You want to know whether God's real. Notice the way God wraps His arms around you when you're troubled. Not only that, He's the ambassador. He says, whom the Father will send in My name. In other words, He will speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Pentecostals and Church of God get wrong. Uh, in uh, their familiarity with the concept of the Holy Spirit, they miss a fundamental element of His office, which is not to speak of Himself, but to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Christ said. said He'll not testify, He'll not speak of Himself, but He'll testify of Me. You want to know if a work of the Holy Ghost is really a work of the Holy Ghost? Try to look for Jesus in it. If you can't find Him, it's not of God. If you can find the televangelist, but you can't find Jesus, it is not of God. If you can find the tongues movement, but you can't find Jesus, it is not of God. And by the way, the tongues movement ain't of God, no matter whether they talk about Jesus or not. It's just not biblical. But what I'm saying is, there should be a, a, a central focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, in other words, as God deals with us, one of the acid tests to knowing the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is He consistently points us towards the Lord Jesus Christ as our advocate, as our Savior, as our mediator. He doesn't speak of Himself. He doesn't speak of you. But He'll point to Jesus as sufficient for life's needs. Not only that, He's the teacher. He says He shall teach you all things. In other words, you want to know whether Bible Christianity is real? Let me tell you how real Christianity is. So real that God trusted His people with His book. Now that is, that is radically different than most world religions that seek to hide away their literature, that seek to obfuscate and conceal their liter- literature, treat it as though you're too dumb to read the Bible. But uh, that's not the attitude of the Lord Jesus. His desire was that all men would know His commandments. We know Bible Christianity is real because it has great focus on the teaching of the Word of God. Why is that? Because the Holy Ghost can be trusted to be a fit teacher. Not only that, He's the reprover. It says this, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. You want to know how I know Bible Christianity is real? You want to know how I know the Holy Ghost is real? Because most of the time He's telling me things I don't want to hear. If He was Jiminy Cricket, if He was a figment of my imagination, He would only tell me the things that made me feel better. He would be a perfect Facebook friend. Instead, he's like a Twitter follower. (laughs) Instead, he's telling me the things I don't want to hear. He's dealing with me about the things that that trouble me. Why? Well, he's bringing into my remembrance the truth, the Word of God to reprove me when I do what is wrong. So I know by the Holy Ghost that Christianity is a real thing. And that's how I experience my relationship with the Lord is through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit of God. But then he mentions another thing. Verse 27 He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. One of the ways that we experience the Lord Jesus Christ when we interact with a real meaningful relationship with God is through His prevailing peace. Notice one, it is present peace. He says, peace I leave with you. Uh, The peace has been afforded to the people of God ever since the Prince of Peace walked this earth. We can have peace. I don't know whether you've got peace or not, but I know we can have peace. I don't have to know what you're going through to know you can have peace. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that I've been through anything as bad or worse than you're going through. Uh, I don't think it's a contest, and I hope you don't either. I'm just telling you tonight, I know you can have peace. Perfect peace have they whose minds are stayed on me. There is real present peace in our life. Not only that, it's personal peace. In other words, it is His peace. He says, my peace I give unto you. You want to know the kind of peace that Lord Jesus gives unto His people? He gave us the perfect example of it when He went to Calvary. He opened not His mouth. Uh, he, He did not lash out. He did not strike out. He instead perfectly trusted His heavenly Father. He committed His soul unto Him as unto a faithful Creator. God did not let him down. The Father did not let him down. That same measure and level of peace we can have in our lives. Not only that, it's a proprietary peace. Look what he says, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. So there is a peace that the world gives, and it is environmental in nature. When things are going well, they have peace. When things are not going well, they do not have peace. But the Lord Jesus said, that's not the kind of peace that I'm giving you. It's not a, it's not a stressed, tenuous, always on the edge of breaking peace. It's a deep down, settled in all of eternity peace that is based not on your conditions, but is based on God's character. That's what saw the Lord Jesus in through His earthly ministry. The reason His peace was so unshakable was because it was never rooted to this world anyway. He was never waiting to see what the Romans would do to decide whether He would have peace. 
He was never waiting to see what the Jews would do to decide whether or not he could go to bed at night. His peace was not rooted in this world. It was rooted in his Father. And he said, that's the kind of peace that I'm giving you. How's he doing that? By giving us the same relationship with the Father that he had. The same Father that loves him and that protected him and that that set forth and ordained his footsteps is the same one that does those very same things for us. And as such, because he can trust him, we can trust him. It's a proprietary peace and it's a powerful peace. Look what he says. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In other words, we don't have to... Boy, there's two things I'm going to say here. Listen carefully. One, we can let our heart be troubled. We can let it be afraid. The natural disposition of your heart and mind is to fret and to fear. That's what the fallen nature does. It worries. First thing that happened when Adam and Eve sinned is they were afraid and went and covered themselves with fig leaves. The natural position is to fear, to be afraid, to live in anxiety, to live in doubt and mistrust of God's plan. We can let that happen. And it will happen if we let it. But the the command of the Lord Jesus here reminds us that we don't have to let it happen. Oftentimes we treat fear, and I want to be very careful how I say this, because there are things that scare me. Amen? Uh, there are things that, that, that bother me. There are think clowns. Somebody say amen. I'm not really bothered by clowns. I mean, a nine millimeter don't care how much makeup you got on, you know? I'm not really, but, but I'm saying there are natural fears, there are phobias, uh, but we don't have to live a life that is yielded under the authority of fear. If we allow ourselves to, it will take place, but we can choose to instead let peace reign in our hearts as Paul later on commanded, and something's going to reign in your life. You're either going to live a life that is preoccupied with anxiety or a life that is preoccupied with providence. One of the two. You're going to choose whether you're going to live in one or the other. And it will not affect or change the outcome except in as much as it affects your relationship with God. God's in control whether you believe that or not. He's in control whether you trust Him or not. But you will be far better if you will let the peace of God reign in your heart and trust Him knowing He's in control. He mentions His prevailing peace. And finally tonight, and I'm done with verse 28. He says, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Now, these verses can be a little puzzling to some people. In fact, a lot of times the uh, Unitarians and uh, the Oneness Pentecostals use this verse uh, to uh, denigrate, or the Unitarians do, use it to denigrate the deity of Christ. Because he says, my Father is greater than I. And they say, well, see, that, that tells you right there that Jesus isn't equal with the Father. But we know from the rest of the Bible that that is not true. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He is equal with God. He is not just the Son of God. He's God the Son. Amen. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. So then what does the Lord Jesus mean? He is speaking here not of character or of nature, but of position and role. Now that's important because it gives us an idea of what he's talking about when he says, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. It would be tempting to look at this and, and think that the Lord Jesus is being a little petty. You know, uh, almost like if you knew someone that that was begrudging you doing something, making a decision, going somewhere, and they would say, well, if you really loved me, you'd just want me to be happy. You know, people say those things. But that's not what the Lord Jesus is saying here. 
What he's saying is, you know that my father is seated on the throne. You know that I'm right here present with you. And you know that there must be a mediator between God and man. I go away that I might sit at the right hand of my father, that I might assume that role as your high priest, and he is God, and that I might intercede for you. And therefore, if you really believe that, you wouldn't begrudge me leaving. You wouldn't be sorrowful over me leaving. You'd be excited because you'd know that rather far from our relationship being diminished, it's getting ready to become far more intimate than it's ever been before. In other words, he mentions to them not only, and I'll go ahead and read him his powerful precepts, his personal presence, his prevailing peace, but then his perpetual priesthood. How do we experience God in this dispensation of grace? Well, I'll tell you how we have an intimate relationship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's through the the great high priest of our profession, Jesus, the Son of God, who is passed into the heavens. His priesthood at the right hand of the Father is what enables us to have a real meaningful relationship with God. He mentions first off the promise of this priesthood. He said, you have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. And I'll admit to you, when he says come again unto you, I don't know if he's speaking about the rapture. He, he may be speaking about the rapture, and I think there's a likelihood that that's possible. He could also be speaking about the intimacy of the relationship that they would enjoy with him spiritually after he ascended to the right hand of the Father. But really, whether it's one or the other, he's reminding them that he's going away, not to get away from them, but to get them closer to the Father. He's not abandoning them. Far from it. He is advocating for them. He mentions the promise of this priesthood and then the position of the priesthood. If you love me, he said, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father for my Father is greater than I. He's saying when I go to the Father, I've already told you that I'll be in you and you in me. So if I go to the Father, I'm taking you with me in the presence of Almighty God. This, of course, is in keeping with what Paul says the book of Ephesians, that we're seated together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But notice what he says in verse 29. Now we have a little different perspective on this. He says, and now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. We see not only the promise and position of this priesthood, but we see the premise of it. He's saying, I'm telling you this, because if you're going to enter into the intimacy of that relationship, you're going to have to have faith to do it. The Bible says we have boldness and access by faith in Him. In other words, you say, Preacher, how do I experience intimately my relationship with God? Through prayer and coming boldly into the throne of grace to obtain grace and mercy to help in time of need. By placing our faith into Him and appropriating those things that have been provided for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quit living below the Christianity that Christ died for and instead start entering into that presence through prayer, through faith, through trusting Him, through leaning upon Him, and experiencing and partaking in those things that He's provided for. You say, preacher, how do you know that Bible Christianity is real? Because we have a prayer-answering God. Because I pray and somehow it gets from these hillbilly lips all the way up into the ivory towers and palaces of the glory of God. Because because I say things in my ignorant, backward, stumbled, uh, non-knowing, non, non-thinking way, and somehow the Holy Ghost takes it and straightens it out and makes it fit for the ears of God. And all of a sudden, the things that I'm asking for, God's doing for me. I know because we have a prayer answering God. So we don't have to wonder whether Bible Christianity is real. We instead have to, in boldness and faith, live a Christian life that testifies of the reality of the Christianity that Christ died for 
and gave to us. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. Listen, if God spoke to your heart about something, you might say, well, preacher, you know, there was a lot that was said tonight. Yeah, but let's just boil it down. Have you been living the Word of God? Would someone look at your life and could they tell that you both believe in God and love God because there is no area of disobedience in your life towards the Word of God? Maybe you've not been yielding to the working and leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. That per personal presence of God. He's been dealing with you, but you've been arguing, you've been fussing back, you've been ignoring, you've been making excuses. Maybe you've not let the peace of God reign in your heart. Maybe you've yielded to anxiety and let it set upon a throne that only Christ should set upon. Or maybe you've let your prayer life slip. You've not been entering into the presence of God. You've not been trusting God. You've not been seeking to grow in God. Whatever it is, can I tell you, all that and more is available to you if you'll just come to Him and bend and yield your heart to Him. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus with